Okay, I'm gonna be loud for a second. Okay, everyone, we're gonna do this. Dent Live! Great. So I am, I'm super excited for this. Uh, we're uh, streaming this live on Facebook, by the way, and we want everybody to have FOMO. So if you feel inclined, you can tell your friends that you are at a sweet live broadcast of a podcast that they can find online at dentthefuture.com slash dentlive. Uh, and uh, hopefully they will all watch. <laughs> Um, one thing briefly for those of you who, those few of you who are new to Dent, uh, Dent is uh, something that Steve and I co-founded uh, years ago. We're, uh, as a group, we connect people through experiences throughout the year. Um, it's, uh, it's really work. Um, we started as a conference uh, in 2013. We, we did the conference for the first time with like 100 people. Uh, and it was just such a wonderful group. Uh, in fact, we have people here who were at that event, and they've been to all of them. I see one over there and one over there, uh, including our, our sommelier. As far as I know, as far as we know, we're the only conference and group like this that has a sommelier. Yeah, Isn't that happen. true? Yeah. Somebody else will steal it, but you know. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to have a piece of dent that we can bring you know, live to the internet and to more folks. Um, so one of the things when we first started talking about the podcast is where to do it. And um, we found this wonderful venue. This is a place called The Collective. It's a new. Brand new. Uh, brand, in fact, it's sort of Second. barely open um, urban clubhouse in the middle of South Lake Union in, in Seattle. Uh, and uh, we're really glad to be here. They've been really uh, supportive and open and helping get this thing it's, off the ground. It's great, because there's nothing going on in South Lake Union. So <laughs> they the really thought need that it. they would they you really know, need it. <laughs> do that for the community is amazing. We also uh, we also reached out when we knew we were going to do this to our friends at Bootstrapper Studios. They're doing the video. Um, I know I've known of Bootstrapper for years because they have done the video for Ignite Seattle for forever, um, and uh, they do a really fantastic job. If you need video uh, video work and a great video team, Hi, they are they are your guys. You should hire them. Um, and then the other thing is, as we've been taking Dent uh, and, and taking what the, was originally the conference experience and bringing it out throughout the United States, um, I've started, Steve and I both started traveling a ton, uh, and I started getting really like geeky about it, which is what I do, and I started wanting to do like travel with one bag and then travel with like a backpack. It gives uh, the bag <laughs> keeps getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> it's, uh, and smaller. it's been shrinking, and I'm proud of it every time. And uh, I was talking to a friend and a denter, Zach Cohn, who said, you know, you should really try, you can get rid of a bunch of your problems and reduce your wardrobe by half by switching to these kinds of uh, wool shirts. Uh, and he said, go check out this brand, Wool and Prince. Um, and I'm actually wearing one of those shirts now. I bought this shirt and another one which is identical to it, except that it is black, uh, about six months ago. And they're the only shirts I've worn since then. Literally, I have two shirts. And so if you see me, I'm either wearing a green shirt or a black shirt, and that's it. And uh, I started looking at the, the company a little bit more, and they're actually really cool. It's, it's um, based down in Oregon, and their um, founder is a guy who was basically like, what is all this wastefulness with like buying a shirt and then buying another shirt you know, two months later because it's worn out? And like, it turns out that wool has a bunch of great properties like um, 
Well, how does it does it pass the it's office the main, sniff test? Yeah, your your the olfactory situation is much improved <laughs> at the office since you've switched to wool. No, my thing is the the spousal unit. You know, I'll put on a shirt, and she go, "What are you? What are you wearing that awful old thing for?" And I'm like, "You just bought this for me. It was totally approved by you." <laughs> well, it's too old now. I'm like, "Really?" So there's this constant churning. Anyway, I don't want to go into the shirts too much, except six times. It's it's six times the life of a cotton shirt. So the we reached out to them, and, and Will and Princess agreed In to... In fact, I don't even want to talk to Rick. I just want to talk about the shirts <laughs> for the next half hour. <laughs> they are really good. They're good. So we, um, uh, Will and Prince has also helped sponsor this podcast and made it possible, which is really fantastic. And I actually have some, some, uh, some goodies for folks later. We're going to do some Q&A. We're going to do some Q&A at the end of the interview, both for people here in the room and for those people who are watching on Facebook. Um, Duffy, who's floating around, uh, is going to be able to check for questions on Facebook and bring some of those into the conversation later. Um, we've also got... Uh, if you go to uh, Wool Prince, and I've actually, there's a link that I, Duffy can tell me what it is later, but it's dentthefuture.com slash something. But you can just go to Wool and Prince, like the royal figure, the prince, dot com. You can you get 10% off a purchase if you use the code DENT, first time purchase. So that's the end of my Good. intro stuff. Um, and I'm excited about our interview. Steve, you want to tell us a little bit more about who we got? Sure. Well, it's really, uh, our first podcast, our first video podcast is special in and of itself, but our guest tonight is makes it remarkable. Um, we're, originally when I said, oh gosh, you're gonna, we're going to have Rick Smith, well that's, that's amazing. I decided to dig into it a little bit and was watching um, some of his other interviews and his writings and I was like, well, I want to find out, I want to find stuff that's really you know, unique to him, stuff that he's done that's really unique to him so we can really dig in. And I kept finding more and more things the more I learned. So we're not going to have enough time, that's the problem. But anyway, it's, it's really a privilege to have Rick Smith who is CEO of Axon, uh, which is a company best known for producing the Taser line of products, and uh, also they've, um, they've moved big time into the space of police cameras and cloud, the cloud support thereof. So anyway, we're very excited to have a conversation with Rick, and I've told him, I said, Rick, we expect candor tonight. <laughs> so anyway, Rick, Rick please, come on out. <laughs> Cool. So I, uh, my PR team prepared the speaker notes for me and didn't want me to lose them. So I've got my script. I'm ready. Good. Well, welcome in. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me out. You, you bet. Uh, so this is not home for you. What's home for you? I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. Awesome. It is a pretty nice place to live. I What's hear it's it? warmer. It is a bit warmer. I love to come up here, though. It's so exotic to see when there's no sun in the sky in the middle of the day. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like a biblical experience. It's, it is kind of where the sun go because you got a whole big division here. Yes. Yeah, Which is, is uh, so you, you, did you know about the weather before you, you signed off on that? No, we did. Like I said, it's, it's a nice change from a place where the sun is always out and sometimes aggressively out. That's true. That's when true. Somebody was telling me it was like 100 degrees in Palm Springs. They were talking about how hot it was, and I just had a cognitive disconnect. <laughs> That's not hot. 120's hot. 100's like a great day. Yeah. So the... 
kind of get the ball rolling, uh, you've only done this a million times in your life, but give us the, you know, a quick backstory for our viewers that haven't necessarily logged in on it before. Yeah, so um, in 1993, I was in business school uh, in Europe and talking to some European students who had a very dim view of America. And when I asked them why, they said, well, it seems like everybody's shooting each other over there. <laughs> and, funny. you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, well, it, it's like tragically yeah. funny, right? It's, it's uh, and they asked me if I knew somebody who'd been shot and killed. And, because I was telling them, oh, it's not like what you see on TV. Right. And when they asked me that question, I realized, oh yeah, you know, just last year, two guys I played high school football with in sunny Scottsdale at a golf resort got shot and killed by a business consultant with a gun in the glove box who lost his temper. And that just struck me as a bizarre state of the world that not only that that could happen, but that it's acceptable. And not just that it's like, I'm not saying politically that it's acceptable, but technologically, like, what are we doing shooting lead balls at people? And to, back then in 1993, you would think the world would have progressed a bit. You know, we thought the British used this technology shooting lead pellets at people hundreds of years ago when, you know, medicine was sawing off a limb like with some alcohol <laughs> and transportation was riding a horse. So I became sort of passionate about we, this idea. We made a lot of progress in so many other areas. Yeah, so many other areas. Like, this just shouldn't be a thing because we should have better options. And as a student of science fiction, you know, you get a little inspired by Captain Kirk had this really cool thing that was a much more elegant approach to dealing with violent situations than blowing holes in Klingons or people. So uh, that whole stun thing. The whole stun thing, yeah. It's and uh, so this was a company that is largely self-funded, what I mean is friends and family. And one of the things that when we were reviewing your story, the story of the company, is um, how perilously close to game over for you guys and that you really pulled it out. And that I found to be a really intriguing story. Can you give us a little more on that? Yeah, I mean, we didn't want it to be funded by friends and family, but you know, nobody else was interested in funding it. Uh, I actually had some friends from college who came out to visit me and they were asking me about what we were doing. And I'm enthusiastically telling them about how we're gonna make the Star Trek phaser and make these electric guns. And, and then I would leave to go get a prop and come back. And every time I stepped out of the room, they would mock me like filming each other and then I'd come back in and return to normal and it was actually a fantastically funny tape when they showed it to me later like realizing how absolutely crazy this idea sounded uh, and when we tried to raise money from any of the normal sources people just would look at you like what you're using electricity to like try to shock people into submission uh, it didn't really fit into any venture capitalists like portfolio uh, and Ultimately, we, we got to the point where we, we tapped friends and family to the point that we almost wiped them all out. And uh, Well, that's right. I, I, I heard you talk about how you were ready, game over guys, and the investors said, hey, no, let's, uh, let's, let's keep this going a bit more. Yeah, so it's 1998. We've just had a major product flop. Uh, that we realized wasn't going to work. And a couple of my buddies from school were up in the Bay Area working at these companies with these goofy names like Yahoo. And I went up to visit them and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. I mean, this is 1998, 99. And 
I didn't think that we had the resources to turn it around. Like literally, right. so I sat with my dad, who was yeah. the main investor, he and his best friend. And I said, hey dad, I think you know it's time to call the ball. Like I, I just can't see that we have the ability to turn this around and you can't keep investing. Um, and he said, well, thanks for the advice, but I wish you'd thought of this a couple years ago because not only have I put almost everything in, the amount of money I have left is less than the line of credit at the bank that, that we will do. go default. So if we go under now, I'm wiped out. And so literally he said, I've got $500,000 left. I'm putting it on. I will get Bruce, who was our other investor, to match. And we have $1 million to, we, we had the idea for this police taser. Uh, we had some of the core technology developed, but we had a, a million dollars to get it from concept to a finished product, tool, package, launched. Hardware is insane. Yeah, and by the time we got it out, like we had absolutely no money for the launch. So our launch plan was literally a guy in a Winnebago going cross country, like doing demos. Uh, but luckily, the product was, was good we got it right. And, and yeah. yeah, and within six months, we were cash flow positive. And then the internet bubble popped, and all of a sudden, companies that made things were pretty cool. And revenue was, oh wow, you guys make things, and you have revenue, and. Uh, so we were able to go public. We went right from never being able to raise an external dime to an IPO. What do you think about um, the constraint that was put on the company by that, you know, million dollars in a, in a, it was a year, you said? Yeah. I mean, I think there's something interesting about that, and I'm relating it in my mind to stories of people who are put in situations, this is maybe not the best analogy, but I, I recently read Andre Agassi's uh, uh, autobiography. And he talks a lot about it. it's like it's kind of like as a kid and growing up and everything. It's like his dad was crazy, and he was basically like scared for his life if he lost a ten tennis game, right? But that pushed him. And the question that I would ask him is like, is it worth it? And so like I, to turn that around and say, it's like here's the pressure of your, you know, family's well-being, uh, your dad's money, his livelihood, the whole thing on the line. Did was it, a was it worth it? And D, what, what do you think was, like, was that the critical ingredient at the end? Like, just having the pressure is like a deadline? Like a it definitely, I think it brought out our best work. Like, when it's that life or death moment, you, you tend to get very focused, uh, and you work really hard, and you get creative. In fact, one of the things I find now that we're a 1,000-person organization, uh, you need those resource constraints, because if you just throw money at things, like, yeah. That's not how greatness happens. That you know, you, you need to even if you don't have resource constraints, you've got to find ways to get tell people to. Like, you got to get creative here. Like just throwing money at people, things I've never seen that turn out well. Yeah. So another, I mean, I thought it was unique that you guys came so close to not making it and pulling it out and in a big way. But the other thing that's, again, fairly unique and difficult, a real challenge, is that whole migration from entrepreneur making a product to manager, to, a, to a, that whole CEO transition. And a lot of people struggle with that, and a lot of people don't make it. Um, I'd like to kind of hear your thoughts on both, say, your journey and maybe some tips and hints for people that are struggling yeah. with that now. Well, one thing I would say is it's not necessarily a bad thing if you don't make it. Like the things that you enjoy is like an entrepreneur, running a larger organization is very different. And there's a lot of times where it's not as enjoyable. Like in the early days, you're scrapping it out and you're in the garage building prototypes, and you're doing that kind of stuff. And it's uh, every day you, you 
feel like you've accomplished something. When you get into a large organization, you actually have to let go of that. And I went through a, a difficult transition period where like, I'm still writing our web pages. And if you've ever seen my writing, that's not a great thing for the organization. And I had a really hard time letting go of these things where I was a chronic micromanager. And I got to a point where I was pretty burned out. Uh, and I was having some conversations you know, a few years ago with my board about, hey, I think it might be time like, for me to retire just because like, this is really not enjoyable anymore. And we came up with a different plan where I actually moved to Europe for a year. Um, as a forcing function, to be like, okay, how do you get out of being a micromanager? Well, plan, and, and maybe, and ultimately, time, like, this might end up with you exiting the org, but either way, it'll force you to do the work you'd have to do to set it up. And I went to Europe, and that was actually kind of a, a re-entry into the entrepreneurial thing. Like, we're hiring small teams and trying to figure out how to succeed in these you know, international markets. Uh, and that actually turned out to be a wonderful forcing function to where when I came back, I think I'm a much better CEO once you like, so for a lot of people that they think, well, how do I hang on to this? Like, I want to yeah. be the CEO. And I think that can actually lead you to a bad place where like that instinct of trying to hang on is making you just not an effective manager. And like, once you get to that point where it's like, ah, oh, like actually I'm okay leaving this. There's this liberation that comes with it. Uh, and and now you that realize I, it's like, wow, I like this better. Yeah, it's way better. Like, and, and I, all of a sudden, you're helping other people grow, and you're like, yeah. you know, not feeling like you've got to be in the middle of every problem. And uh, so, I, I think I've kind of pulled myself through the knothole to where, uh, you know, now I've had this big aha moment. You know, I'm getting to where I have more wisdom than. Uh, than <laughs> you know, you're in the, you're in the later half of your yes. career, and <laughs> and so now it's uh, it's kind of fun to let the youngsters like solve a lot of the hard problems and. Uh, kind of take a step back, and I've realized now, like the whole art of this is, is CEO. It's like defining the mission and getting fantastic people that are smarter than you in all the different areas they need to be, and just letting them run. And it's uh, oh, that, it's really I, cool. That whole A players hiring A players is, I firmly invested in that thesis. You know, that everybody everybody says I used to say it early in my career, but yeah. I'm not sure I believed it because I still uh -huh. thought like, oh, I'm the entrepreneur. Like I need to solve every interesting uh -huh. problem. Uh, and if I could go back and slap myself at 23, I would have said, dude, like, do not, don't try to be the smartest guy in the room. Like, don't jump onto every interesting problem. The only problem you need to solve is getting fantastic people. If you solve that one problem, everything else takes care of itself. Is there a person who you've hired or recruited in the past, you know, several years that sticks out to you as like, that was an interesting one to pull? And if so, would you, you know, care to share how you manage to like pull it you know because often I think often you'll find people who are a players who are at other work yeah right I mean it's you want to pull someone from a place where they're excelling in what you need so let me give you a slightly different spin on this so one of the most influential hires uh, was in 2008 this is as I'm coming into this burnout phase and we wanted to try some different, we went through one phase where we hired a bunch of people from big companies, we're like, oh, we want to be a big company, so we should hire a bunch of people yeah. from big companies. And that didn't go well. Because uh, I think people that succeed at big companies, it's a different DNA, and they're used to operating in big systems, and that's just 
very different, especially to companies that don't have any systems. Yeah. And those people don't even necessarily know how to build the scale of systems you need. So all of a sudden, the organization became fairly political. And so we boomeranged in a little different direction. And we're like, all right, we need to hire like a bunch of smart young people that are just going like, to help us like solve this like with fresh perspectives. And uh, probably the most influential of those was a young Marine infantryman who just left the Marine Corps, was just back from Iraq. And we tried a couple things. Too. We've, we've hired you know, some Ivy Leaguers fresh out of school. And we've had some good luck there. We've hired you know, people from other companies. But the thing about Luke that was interesting, his name was Luke Larson. So I hired this young Marine to come in as a project manager. And what was interesting, we always had an open door policy. Um, we all work in cubes, right? It's an open office environment. But Luke was unique in that he would come over to me and he would challenge me on things. He'd say, hey, great, what's going on over here? And you know, maybe he'd point out it's some personnel issue or something, but all of a sudden like he's in challenging me and I realized we had not built a culture that had encouraged that. that was okay. And like basically the number of things, it, he was a product manager. He, so he started project manager and then he worked up to product manager. So he was, seemed like an infantry, this guy would bring me problems and then he'd solve them. Like, wow, this is awesome, I need more of this. Uh, and one of the things when he gave him the product, he said, I can't sell this thing. Like, literally, my solution is put a bullet in it and start over. And then he brought me a plan. We need to go. This was for wearable cameras. He identified a company that's making a consumer wearable camera that we could partner with them, go to Oakley, who makes all the mm-hmm. yeah. eyewear that most cops wear. He brought me a, a, a plan, and you know, things really shifted pretty dramatically from there forward. So uh, interestingly, this is one of those out of the blue, just getting somebody yeah. that shifted the culture and made it. Like, yeah. hey, we need to hire people who are going to challenge us, who aren't going to listen to you, the almighty CEO, and do what you say, <laughs> that they're going to challenge you. And uh, so today, like, we have a, I, I think we've got a pretty good culture where, you know, whether you're an intern or, you know, somebody who's, uh, like, our head of global product, uh, you know, was at Apple and ran iTunes and, and iLife in the early 2000s. You know, so he's seen a lot as well. So I don't care if it's somebody with a lot of experience or none, like, they need to challenge ideas and like we need to all be comfortable yeah. that ideas shouldn't prevail because of where you sit in the org chart. Yeah, and there's a um, uh, an interesting, I think there's a common misunderstanding about conflict in the office, like that you have to uh, sometimes stay quiet to either keep a friendship or keep a job. And that's a difficult thing to like wrangle. Like, is there anything you think you've done intentionally uh, you know, it's great, like, you have this lucky hire you yeah. know, giving you a direction, but what did you do, like, after that happened? Like, okay, you see a pattern here, this is useful. How do you encourage yeah. that in the well, culture? So another thing I had to learn was how to fire people. Um, it still remains my least favorite part of the job. I'm horrible at it. Uh, and in the first 15 years of my career, the only time we ever fired people is, like, if we had gotten into deep financial trouble and we had to yeah. do a reduction in force. Unfortunately, that happened a couple times. Um, but one of the things that Luke, when he was challenged about, had to do with people. And one of the first issues he brought to me was like, hey, what's going on with this person over there? It's a really cancerous individual. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, they've been here a long time. And yeah, it's just kind of how they are. And he sent me the, the famous Netflix deck on HR. I don't know if you guys have uh, yes, so I have seen this one. Netflix yeah. had this presentation yeah. on HR. And the punchline was, we're building a pro sports team, not a family. And the light bulb went on for me, where it's like, look, in a family, if somebody's crazy and toxic, nothing you can do about their family. And that's how I was treating it up until then. Whereas, hey, pro sports team, you might be the nicest guy in the world, and you might be pretty darn good, but yeah, you're not at the top of your game anymore. 
sorry, we're going to trade you out. You know, if we want to win the Super Bowl, we're going to put the best team on the field. And since we've adopted, at first it felt very heartless to me, and I had a very hard time adjusting to it. But now people come to Axon, and I, literally, I get literally, I was just talking to some of our new hires this week who come from really awesome, well-known tech companies. And they were saying, man, this is amazing here. The attitude is so positive, and these people are really sharp. Like, what's going on here? And one of the secrets is literally, if you identify people that are not happy, you got to either change them or get them out. Uh, so we, we went from like the point where it's, you had to be cancerous to get fired. <laughs> then we went to the point where if you're a really nice person, but you're just not particularly performing, performing or then we move out, and now I think we've gotten to a point where it's, hey, you've got to be on top of your game. And if not, it's like you know nobody's fault, or maybe you don't want to work particularly hard. Like we're not making a judgment on you as a human being, but we want to win the Super Bowl. So yeah, you know, yeah. Well, metaphors—the right metaphor to the right situation is pivotal, and the wrong metaphor can be death. We were talking about that earlier in terms of sort of what metaphors to apply to business. It's it's really sort of a dark truth, but like hiring slow and firing fast. Like if you want to have a great culture, like getting the wrong people out is an unfortunate Well, that move, that move the management, that's one of the most important elements. The other one you talked about is the whole training side of it, training and coaching. Uh, we were talking about that the other day. Uh, Andy Grove's book, High Output Management, that's his that uh, former CEO of Intel. Just, yeah. yeah. Number one job is training coaching. So I want to... I want to because this is the dent, you know, yeah. dent live show. I want to, I want to bring it a little bit to topics that are kind of dent comes from the Steve Jobs phrase. We're here to put a dent in the universe, um, and I, I'm kind of curious without going into that much if that phrase has any particular meaning to you, or if you think there's like what is it to put a dent in the universe? Reflect on that. Yeah, I, I think uh, people want to have self-meaning, right? They want to work on things that are important, and you'd like to think at the end of your life you'll look back and, you know, hey, I did more than convert oxygen to CO2, right? And uh, I think in in our case, the dent we want to put in the universe is we're going to get people to stop killing each other. Like, that seems like a worthwhile thing, and uh, if you dig into it, like, Maybe we're not going to be able to stop serial killers and stop all evil in the world, but right now we live in a world where there are many circumstances where it is legally and morally acceptable to kill someone. And if you dig into those, in almost every case it ends up being, well, I didn't have a choice. Let me narrow it further to the place we do a lot of work right now, which is in police. So anytime police shoot and kill someone, they're not trained to shoot to kill, and it's actually never acceptable to shoot for the intention of killing someone. They shoot to stop a threat. And then the next sentence is almost always, I had no choice. So we look at that and say, huh, well, what choice would they need? If we could develop a technology that could stop a threat more reliably than a handgun without inflicting death on another person, then under what circumstances would you kill someone? And we've only recently started to come out with this sort of very public stance that our mission is to make the bullet obsolete. And be very clear, it's not a political statement saying we want to take anything away from anyone, but uh, people loved their horses in New York City in the early 1900s, and they had a huge horse manure problem. The solution wasn't to take people's horses away. Yeah. It was to give them a new technology. And that technology created other problems, and hopefully we're going to solve those. But uh, It's interesting. It's almost more in my mind, and I don't know you know, what the what the, the, the option is, but it's almost more in my mind you can talk about like how people... Uh, you know, 
the electric motor replacing the gas motor is almost maybe, anyways, another metaphor. Speaking of too many metaphors. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, ultimately, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit of a techno-optimist utopian, and it's a fair criticism that says, hey, this, you know, technology is not the answer to every problem, but I think most problems have interesting ways where technology can play a role. And I think we're in a space where people don't typically think of technology as part of the solution yeah. to the police brutality or the police shootings or social violence. Yeah. Uh, but we think it, it can make a difference. So I've got two more in this thread. One is you mentioned earlier uh, a love of sci-fi. I'm curious about like what what was a, a really inspiring sci-fi book to you uh, when you were growing up that like that made you love it? Yeah, so I'd say actually my reading habits tend to be more in fantasy, okay. uh, like you know, Conan and uh, nice. you know that, that sort of uh, yeah. Dungeons and Dragons kind of stuff. Uh, so my sci-fi really came more from you know, Star Wars in 1977, and nice. I, I grew up actually watching a fairly obscure. Japanese series uh, called the Battleship Yamato. Uh, it was, I think it was called Star Blazers in the U.S. It's anime of uh -huh. like sci-fi, this yeah. Japanese battleship in space. And, um, just in general, I, I remember when Luke Skywalker got his robotic arm, that was a pretty cool moment. Yeah. So when I went to college, I actually wanted to work on robotic limbs and prosthetics. Uh, so I studied neurobiology, which interestingly came in quite useful when I learned about the taser and thought about how we would create weapons that might take over control of the human body, which is effectively what we do. Instead of building machines that my brain can control, we build machines that can control your body. Yeah. So then, you know, that's sort of getting at this idea that people can be inspired and changed through sort of moments or, uh, you know, pieces of inspiration from either culture or conversations. So I'm wondering, is there a conversation that you've had or a moment you've had over your life that really stands out to you as like, this was the most, meaningful thing and it really stuck with me yeah on a professional level i'd say it was when i was living in belgium in school it was that conversation where we're talking about you know my hometowns and everybody's proud of their hometown but people were like really negative on mine and it came down to this gun issue and when somebody asked me do you know somebody who's been shot and killed like yeah. it rocked me back to have to answer yes in this quaint golf resort of Scottsdale, yes, I know two kids that were shot and killed in the parking lot of a golf resort over yeah. a traffic altercation. Yeah, and that obviously had a pretty pivotal impact on where I went with life. Well, we're, we're all about conversation. That's a big part of kind of our reason for being is getting the right people together to talk about cross-pollinate ideas. Um, and so I greatly appreciate, we greatly appreciate you doing a little cross-pollinization with us tonight. <laughs> so and uh, get plenty more science fiction stuff we could. <laughs> I'm assuming we're, what's our time? We're, yeah, I was about to say, why don't we do, so one of the things that we did today uh, as we got this podcast going is we started something really fun where before we got, before we got up here, uh, we had you go up. This beautiful venue has a climbing wall. It's a bouldering wall over there. And uh, part of what makes Den interesting is getting people outside of their context, getting people outside of their comfort zone, having you know a shared experience together, uh, something new and interesting. And I mean, to the extent that we've had it at, you know, when we do the big conference, we've had um, parkour as part of the program, which is the you know free running thing at the beginning of those James Bond movies. So it was kind of a cool opportunity to do something like that. Uh, and you're the first. And we're going to have uh, each of our guests 
uh, go up this wall, and we'll see where they end up on the uh, the leaderboard, which you are beginning today. I'm in I'm in first place. So you are in first place. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, it's what's the is it the if it's if you're not first you're last, uh, yeah. but you're both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm so an optimist. I'm in first. <laughs> yeah. The way uh, so the way we had it set up is it's. Uh, 45 seconds to go as far up the route as you uh, as you feel comfortable or want to or can, and uh, and then beyond that, if you make it to the top, uh, in what time did you do it? And we have, I believe, the clip of uh, we did it three times, and we'll we'll show the fastest one, and I believe we'll be able to do it back here on the TV and on the stream, assuming I get a nod from the back. All right, so let's go ahead and roll that. I look significantly less graceful than my self-image. <laughs> That's the filter we're applying. It's not you. And I mean, so that was it. You got to the top, and this is the this is what's called the down climb. I should have commentated that, but I was like, all right. So and in addition, so not only did you get to the top which means that I miscalculated and made this way too easy. Uh, you did it in 14.6 seconds. So that is our first entry on the leaderboard. So it's a record. Is what it's, a record. it's a record. It is a record. All right. Um, so thank you for indulging with that. This is, this is fun. Doesn't it was fun. Do we have socks? Uh, yeah, we do have socks. You want a pair of socks? Pair of socks. Well, we, we should, see we the should socks award before our, I answer that. We should. We should award a. Well, I was gonna give the. Uh, I was gonna and still am gonna. This give is out unplanned. These socks. This is a total. We've thrown uh, everything off by the introduction <laughs> of are, socks too early into the. Probably good for you. Mediums. I was gonna give socks to the people who are asking questions. Well, I think he. But needs, I still can. Uh, you wouldn't get me climbing that thing. Um, so. so it's actually it's time to do some Q and A from people uh, here in the you know studio audience with us. And uh, and and Duffy will, will let us know if there's any questions from Facebook that are you know we gotta interject and, and ask. So if you're watching the stream and you have anything in particular you'd like to ask Rick, Rick, feel free to throw it into the, the like Facebook chat interactive feature. Um, uh, and if not, we'll throw it open to the folks here in the room at this point in time uh, to to throw any questions Rick's way. And I got socks for you. If you got a question, uh -oh. yeah, go for it. So Rick, you mentioned opening uh, operations in Europe. What are some other uh, police departments in other countries doing as far as their uh, way of slowing down criminals? Do they have similar technologies, or is it different in other parts of the world? Okay. Yeah. I'll repeat the question just in case people in the back couldn't hear. Is or on the stream? <laughs> yeah. Is essentially how. Are your products being integrated in Europe? If I may truncate it down a little bit, that wasn't the full question, but essentially how, a little bit more about how your products are working in Europe. Yeah, so I'd say policing is pretty similar around the world. They're, they're facing you know, very similar challenges. Um, there are some striking differences as well. I would say, for example, in Europe, um, there is a bit more of a focus where they're Policing is seen as more of a community service-oriented uh, job, where I'd say in the U.S., uh, at least historically, it's been a little more about sort of uh, policing sort of bad neighborhoods and arresting bad guys, so to speak. I think we're seeing that it's evolving, uh, where I think you know 
we're seeing a bit of a convergence where, frankly, in Europe, they're seeing higher levels of violence occurring. And in the U.S., I think we're seeing more of a transition, you know, from this sort of warrior to guardian mentality. Uh, so one of the things we, we're trying to do is actually facilitate some interactions around that. British policing does a pretty remarkable job uh, where, like, if you pull a knife on a police officer in the U.S. and you move towards them aggressively, you will be shot and, and potentially killed. If you do that in, in the United Kingdom, the police will typically like, give ground and then uh, they'll come at it like they don't have as much of a, an inclination that they're going to hold their ground in that moment. They'll retreat and call specialists. And uh, I think there's you know something we can learn from that where uh, we could adopt some of those tactics that maybe avoid that maybe, yes, you could make an argument that you're legally justified when somebody's coming in an officer, but maybe there's some alternatives to like letting that confrontation occur in the moment and to separate for a little bit. The other thing I think is somewhat interesting, the European perspective on privacy and civil liberties is quite different. So in the UK, when they think about body cameras, they're very interested in like facial recognition and live streaming, uh, and, and that you know, like when we, when I was presenting with the police in France, well, after the Bataclan incident, you know, the terrorist attack there, they're very much focused on how can we use this to identify, you know, subjects that might be posing a risk to the public. Hmm. Whereas in the U.S., I th I'd say the police are certainly interested in that, but there's much more public concern about does this become the Orwellian police state and how might that be abused. So that's actually an interesting challenge we're navigating right now about, OK, how do we approach this? What are the positives that facial recognition could do? And what are the negatives? So we've, we've sort of made an intentional decision not to move too quickly and deploy the technology to where it could be misused. So uh, we, we formed an AI ethics and privacy advisory board to help us think that through to make sure that you know we do it in a way that we're going to be proud of later and that we've at least like, really thought through how can we minimize the potentials for abuse? I mean, I think ultimately we are going to see things like AI and different technologies being employed by policing. Uh, we just we're in this unique situation where we can influence how it's done, and rather than just rush into it, like how do we do it thoughtfully? If nobody else has one to jump in, right? Oh, go for it. We get a bunch. Two part question: but Is there an impact you sort of made, or I need to say, debt uh, you're <laughs> particularly proud about? And then is there something that you're able to talk about anything that you sort of see coming down the pipe that you know you might want to speak about? Is there other impacts that? So I'll repeat that for the stream again. So is there is there anything, an, a dent or an impact that you've made that you're particularly proud is like proud of? And then is there anything coming down the pipeline you want to preview for us? Yeah, so uh, the biggest dent is we have, at this point, had our devices, our tasers used in about 200,000 situations where it saved somebody's life from potential death or serious injury. Uh, it's where, yeah, it's, you know, and, and we've actually had our lawyers and independents uh, review how we get to that number based on surveys of police agencies, et cetera, so I can you know, say it as a public company and have some justification for it. And that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, thing I'm most excited about is, well, let me start with maybe where I'm a little disappointed. Um, last week, there was a prominent situation caught on body camera video where tasers didn't stop somebody and he was subsequently shot and killed. And that's the sort of thing that it's a real motivator where, you know, we 
didn't succeed in that case. And so I'd say where, where Taser technology is at today is in a laboratory condition, we're highly effective. We're, in fact, we're more effective today and faster than a bullet in stopping a threat. But that's in the laboratory. We're not as reliable in the field yet. So we've set a goal that within the next 10 years, we will launch a weapon that will outperform a lethal weapon within a 50-foot range to where we would actually become a rational choice, not because you don't want to hurt the other person, but we'll actually do a better job of protecting you than you shooting them with a bullet. And that's going to be a real game changer. That's why my next job is in a lab. <laughs> uh, I wanted to get from over there. Yeah. Duff, wait, hang on just a second. Can we bring the mic over? Is that going to yeah. work so that we don't have to repeat the question? That's excellent. Thanks. Hi. I was just wondering um, if you could speak about how your products interact with the cloud. I think that was mentioned in, in the intro. And I was wondering if you could speak yeah. to that more. How your products interact with the cloud. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, software is eating the world, right? Like, here we are, this weapon company making these devices. And we. There was a progression where, as tasers got deployed, you know, chances of the first time you heard about the word taser was probably not a positive thing. You probably read about it in a newspaper where there was some terrible outcome or some controversy. And that got us into the camera space. So rather than arguing about are, are weapons good or bad, well, they're neither. It's how they're used. So we started making cameras. And then we realized, really, what our customers need isn't a camera. They need a system to record things and then manage a massive amount of data. Uh, so we made a shift to transition the company into a connected devices and cloud software company. Uh, and that's been really successful. Actually, it's really funny. I, a year ago, we changed it. The name of the company used to be Taser. And I can tell you, when we would go meet with IT departments and say, hey, I'm from Taser, the leading cloud software company in this industry, <laughs> people would look at me like I had lost my mind. Because there's this just cognitive disconnect. Wait, no, 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 Taser is an electric gun. How does that relate to software? And so we ultimately changed the name of the company to Axon, which doesn't have an immediate, like, strong affiliation with a single product. Uh, so today we're running 22 petabytes of data, 22 million gigabytes. Uh, we believe we've been informed we're the largest data set on Microsoft's GovCloud infrastructure, and we're growing at a rate of over one petabyte per month. And by the end of the year, it'll be two petabytes a month. So we've it's pretty kind of cool that it's not only built a company, but then led it through a really interesting transition to where now we have a fantastic software team. I was just at our, we just celebrated our office expansion here in Seattle uh, to where now we're running a, a true tech company that's you know solving really interesting problems that spec all the way from devices to cloud software. And of course, AI is a big area for us because there's a lot of information in these videos that's kind of locked away. Uh, but again, it raises really interesting ethical questions too, right? Like what information should we be unlocking in there and what information shouldn't be unlocked? And uh, so we, that's kind of cool too. Like you can, these things are going to happen. So when we are recruiting people, we're like, look, you can sit and complain about police. Or you can sit and complain about the ways they're going to violate your privacy. Or you can come be part of the solution and like, think about thoughtfully, how do we do this? How do we apply technology to make policing more transparent? Because we can't operate a society without a law enforcement function. So let's let's focus on how to do it let's right. Prove it. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, Colin, I'm So even with the transition to being a software and connected device. Deep in your sci-fi heart of hearts, is the phaser still a goal? Um, <laughs> question is, is, yeah, in is your sci-fi heart of hearts, you're still chasing the phaser. 
Yes. Yeah. Yep. Good. We've All right. <laughs> There's good stuff coming. We're good. Stay We're good. <laughs> All right. One over here. Lots of different questions. It's really I, that come to mind. But what I'm struck a little bit is about your your kind of origin, I suppose, in terms of having the conversation with folks in Europe. Yeah. And so you had this firsthand experience. And I'm sorry to hear about you know the loss of someone that you knew. What does your company do in terms of whether it's cloud information that that really kind of embraces a lot of the communities that are dealing with tasers and the gun violence and those types of things to represent both the diversity in your workplace as well as what you're doing in terms of outreach to those communities. Yeah. Um, do you want to repeat the question? Or did no, I think it's just on mic. Sucks. So um, we have to be a little bit careful in terms of how we approach this that uh, we can't be seen, I think, as too pro-police or too critical of police. Uh, so we'll... Uh, typically try to engage not only with law enforcement, but you know, we have advisors from the ACLU and from other uh, community groups. We work a lot with Noble, which is a national organization of black law enforcement. We found they're a particularly constructive group in that they really sort of bridge communities of color and law enforcement. Like after the Ferguson you know, incident, Noble uh, as an organization was really playing a constructive role in like, hey, how do we make people feel heard, but in a way that also like connects to more than just anger at the police, and that's that's a hard hard needle to thread. Uh, so we have to again, I think, as an equipment and technology supplier, we need to listen a lot, and we need to uh, focus on bringing out solutions that are geared towards sort of a fair playing field. Uh, so it's not about always proving the cops right. Also, we got to be really careful about not being overly critical of police either. That's not our role. Our role is, we, our technology is there are cops who lost their job because they were doing bad stuff and they got caught on our equipment. And we think that's a great thing. And we'll actually find most cops will tell you that's a great thing. Um, I have found, I've met a lot of great people in, in police work and it's a hard job. And I can tell you that they don't want these bad apples out there either because it, it reflects terribly on, you can imagine if you were a good cop and you strap on your body armor and your firearm, you go out and try and do a good job. When they see like these incidents of police brutality or somebody who's being a, an abusive individual, like it, it, shines, it, it sort of ruins the reputation, right? It's like, why am I doing this for someone else to go out and make me look like a thug? And uh, so we're proud of the role we've helped in rooting that stuff out. We're as proud of that as we are of also protecting you know, some of the officers that have been accused of pretty awful things that our technology exonerates them. Yeah. Diversity within the organization. So uh, I think we're, you know, obviously we're, we're not at 50-50, but we are tracking our, our diversity numbers, and we've got a diversity committee. Uh, and I think if you come and check out our office here, you'll find that we're, I think we're one of the more diverse uh, and welcoming environments. And that's certainly something that's been a real you know, goal for us and it continues to be. But if I, if I told you we were there and we were done, you should be pretty skeptical. It's, uh, you know, it's an area I think, and, and particularly within the tech community, I mean, a lot of organizations are uh, really focused on bringing in a diverse group. So if you're watching online, uh, and particularly if you're you know, a, a woman coming into tech, come to us first. Uh, you know, <laughs> don't go to these other places. They don't mean it like we mean it. So come to Axon. <laughs> All right, I think we have time for one more question, which I see over here. So. so. 
very well publicized and unique personal compensation package that's kind of patterned after Elon Musk. Do you think that public CEOs of public companies should have something that's similar and very informal space like yours? Is, is that something that should be common or should stay unique like what you have and what Elon has? So I'll rephrase yeah. that for the stream. Is you've got a you've got a unique uh, compensation package, which if you don't mind explaining first before answering, and then second part of that is should everybody else who's a you know public company CEO do the same thing? So I'd love to claim credit for it, but we very you know we copied a really well thought out plan. So uh, <laughs> so basically the plan amount is very similar to Elon Musk's plan, and basically it's zero comp. It's all options based on hitting performance targets uh, to where you know you actually make an outsized return if you're really successful and you make nothing if you're not, uh, which I think it's great. Like my comp committee brought it to me uh, because as I was also going through this, like well, who do I want to be when I grow up? I think of myself as more of an entrepreneur than like a highly paid executive. And one of the things I actually find morally offensive is like executives who get paid really highly regardless of whether they do well or not. And really offensive is when they get fired for sucking that they make a lot of money on a golden parachute on the way out. Like that's just morally offensive. And I, to me, that's like, I look at that like a good cop looks at a, an abusive cop. Like, hey, you're, you're screwing it up for all of us. Like I look at that and say, no wonder people like don't hold CEOs maybe in really high regard. Because if the system looks like it's rigged where you can, whether you're good or bad, you make a lot of money. Uh, so for me, I feel better about the situation that I'm in now. And, and for me, it, 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 personally, it makes it a little more exciting. It's kind of like, all right, I'm stepping into the arena under the lights, and if I suck, I go home with nothing. Like, that's actually a good thing. I'm in a position where the company did reasonably successful, so you know, it's not like I'm going to starve, but you know, I, it, I find it pretty rewarding, and I, I think it'd be good for more CEOs to do it. Uh, than these things where you get paid no matter what. Like, you should get paid for, if you're gonna make big money, you ought to have to like turn in some real results. Incentives, huh? I agree. Yeah. So I know I said that was the last question, but I, we did have one online, I think, that we wanna throw in, so go ahead and oh, throw yeah, it in. We got one from Facebook from Stephen Tuttle, <clears throat> excuse me, asking about uh, what's the worst advice and the best advice you've encountered to date? Oh, so the best advice, that's an easy one. It's, it's just focus on getting the right people, as we've talked about. Like, I can't repeat that enough. Uh, if you get the right people, everything else uh, takes care of itself. The worst advice, oh boy. Go up a climbing wall at this yeah. podcast. Uh, <laughs> 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 I was, I'm having a hard time with what the worst advice would be, other than, I don't know if it was advice or just this idea that like hiring big company people to come in to help mm. you like scale from being a small company to a big company, uh, that's just a really bad idea. <laughs> you're, you're, and you're not setting those people up to succeed either because yeah. the skills that make them succeed in large, stable systems are not the skills that are, you know, for a company that's chaos, that's trying to find order. Uh, cool. Thank you very much. I think that's a wrap. And, uh, wait, yep. I do have one thing to say. So I see one more thing, one more thing. Um, we were uh, really fortunate to get to work with the Evergrey on this as well. Uh, this is an Evergrey partner event at the Collective. And uh, one thing that they have allowed us to do is use their photo booth, which is that strange glowing sci-fi ring over there. If you go over, uh, I'll make sure it's all on and set up, and you can do like a little 
uh, photo booth thing of yourself and then it'll email it to you. You can put it on Instagram. You can do whatever you want with it. It's just kind of a fun thing and we're uh, we're very grateful that they could be part of this as well. It's set on stun too, so it'll be, <laughs> it'll be fine. Light stun. All right. I think that's genuinely, should I look at my notes before I say that's actually it? Uh, yeah, I think that's the last thing in my notes. All right. So All thank, right, well, we're, thanks, yeah, Rick. Rick will be here. Really Let's uh, have some drinks. Thank you. So I got another great Star Trek metaphor for you. <laughs> More Star Trek metaphors.